Well, good morning. It's great to see you today. Isn't it nice to get up in the morning and not have to think about how to shield yourself from the cold or wet to go out? It's pretty cool. Um, you know, dedications, public dedications of, of public places and things have always been a pretty big deal with human beings. Uh, in fact, we're going to look at one of those in the book of Daniel today. So these things go back thousands of years, and it's always interesting to see how public spaces are dedicated, what's done and what emphasis is brought. And there was one of these just recently I thought was very interesting. Some rich people in Manhattan and New York became aware of a public restroom that was being put in and in uptown Manhattan, near a, a office and commercial area, and they um, they decided to pitch in solo and decorate the bathroom because they wanted this public restroom in Manhattan to look like the public restrooms in the big swanky mergers and acquisition and and investment banker companies in Manhattan. So they came together and they spent a third of a million dollars decorating a bathroom and endowing it with fresh-cut flowers and gallery art uh, every, every month. And uh, this thing costs a third of a million bucks. And so they had the big celebration. And, of course, how do you celebrate the opening of a large, expensive public restroom? Yeah. Summer has suggested you could pee on it. Um, <laughs> probably the first time I ever used that terminology in church, so thanks for that. That's good. Um, I, another, another thing, just try this one. See, see how this one will work for you. You rascal, I'm going to get you. Um, you know, you got to preach next week, right? Um, and I'm coming back. Um, the, they, they put a stretch of toilet paper out and cut the toilet paper ribbon to dedicate this public potty. Um, in today's scripture, we're going to look at the story of a public dedication. And it seems maybe a little innocuous and unharmful when you first start reading about it. And then you realize it's loaded with all kinds of cultural meaning and coercive political pressure. And uh, I think you're going to see some parallels between the Babylonian exile of God's people at the time of the writing of the letter of Daniel and the Babylonian exile that we find ourselves in in the midst of Western civilization, living out the countercultural reality of life in Christ in the midst of a shallow, consumerist uh, world, and a world that begs us to run off and follow all kinds of charming things that only destroy us, right? So in today's scripture, we see this ancient practice of dedicating a public work, a monument. The nation of Israel has been conquered, and uh, this story takes about, a, about takes place about 165 AD. In that area, conquering countries basically annexed the nearby states that they conquered. They became what we call vassal states. In other words, Babylon has taken over Israel and runs it. And obviously, the whole taxation system and any resources that come out of Israel are now at the beck and call of the Babylonians. And um, there's, kind of a, there's kind of a joke uh, going around about this, I'll, I'll tell you in a second. But 
one of the things that happens in these vassal state situations, and you can read this in chapter one uh, of Daniel, if you're reading the whole book, and, and you, it would be helpful to do that, uh, you can see that the brightest and best of Israel's culture or the conquered state's culture gets moved to the conquering country. So you see the strategy two ways. You take the brightest and best knowledge capital out of Israel, bring it to Babylon. And these are young, gifted champions of a, of a new culture and new technologies and, and new everything. So they, they come to Babylon, they learn to eat Babylonian food, speak the language, they get a new name. And the new names they're given are names that are reflective of pagan gods. Well, they're supposed to worship only Yahweh alone, and now they carry the names of pagan gods themselves in captivity. And, and they're off in this land, and then the more agrarian and simpler people, they stay back in Israel and work and provide the natural resources of the land and, and other such things to the state that's conquered them. It's quite a deal, and these younger folks are put in a bit of a cultural crucible. And you'll see that again and again, Daniel. Uh, how do you live counterculturally when you're beholden to a conquering state that uh, wants you to be its subject and literally worship the gods of that era and that culture? It's a real pressure cooker. And as our story opens, it says, King Nebuchadnezzar, who's a fairly new king in Babylon. So the other thing is here is he's got a big win. He's conquered Israel, he's taken the Jewish people captive, and, and he's established the throne for himself, and he's having delusions of grandeur. And part of that is, and Summer told the story last week, Nebuchadnezzar has this dream about this giant statue. In that dream, if you follow it closely enough and you do a little Freudian psychology, he's projecting himself. He sees himself as the new God on the face of the earth, and all the world should answer to me, Nebuchadnezzar. And he has a dream to uphold that when he tells Daniel about his dream. It's all going that way for, for him, and it's a good-looking picture. But in the latter part of the dream, an outside force who happens to be the God of Israel, the Yahweh that the, that the Jews worship, basically goes to a mountainside, forms a bowling ball, and rolls a strike at the statue and just obliterates it. And that's how fast this self-made God and image of this indestructible statue that Nebuchadnezzar has goes down. So what do paranoid, narcissistic, narcissistic leaders do when threatened? Instead of listening to the warning in that dream from Daniel, you go build the statue you were dreaming about, you put it up in public, and then you make everybody that works for you come and worship it. Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, 60 cubits high, 6 cubits wide. He set it upon the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. There's a joke with my friends down in Central America, by the way, about statues and things like that. And it goes like this. The fascist leaders, when they were in control in Central America, built statues of themselves and put them all over the place. And ba the New Day Babylon, when, when the Iraq War, remember all the statues of Saddam that were toppled down and taken? They were everywhere, right? So the fascist governments put up statues of themselves to remind the people that they're like gods, they're durable, they're made of rock. 
the more progressive or Marxist leaders in Central America build public parks, parks, or community centers, and then never finish them, never open them, and just let them go to seed. But everybody goes, look what they did for the people. So they take the money they've extracted from the people, build a public monument, and then don't ever use it for anything. So a lot of times these public works are a big waste of money, and they're trying to make some kind of a cultural statement, the leaders are, about themselves and how great they are. So we see that going on here, and in our story, there's a huge statue in Nebuchadnezzar's likeness. We heard about it in chapter 2, uh, this giant god-like thing, and, and this, this baby is actually very large. This would be a 90-foot high statue that's about 9 feet wide and thick, sitting on some kind of a pedestal. So in a land that's fairly deserty and barren, you've got this thing sticking 90, 100 feet up in the air, and it's an image of the guy himself who's king. And he's going to set that up, and we'll hear about the setup. He sent out a herald, and the herald loudly proclaimed, nations and people of every language, come gather, satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, all the other provincial officials, come to the dedication of the image that's been set up. The satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, the aforementioned, all stood there before it. So now you see this huge public gathering in front of the statue in a plain just outside of the area that we'd know as Baghdad. And, and you'll see that why this guest list is important that's mentioned, because all the influential people of Babylon are brought there. And they're going to see Nebuchadnezzar make a statement about himself. He's going to declare himself as a god who is not only worthy of being worshipped, but whom you have to worship. The herald loudly proclaimed, nation and peoples of every language, this is what you're commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, all kinds of music, you must, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into the blazing furnace. And of course, see how the heralds, governments are good at spin doctoring, right? See the the spin on this. It's this beautiful gold statue that Nebuchadnezzar had made that you're to come and worship. And they kind of leave out the part that it's an image of himself, Nebuchadnezzar, that's set up there, right? But the bottom line is, you're going to bow down to this baby, or you're going to be thrown in a blazing furnace. And now the story takes a new twist, because it becomes a form of public coercion. You have to show up, you have to swear not your allegiance to Nebuchadnezzar, but your devoted worship to Nebuchadnezzar. Probably nobody really likes that kind of public coercion and that mixture of church and state, particularly these young Jewish men and women who've been raised in their faith and believe there's only one God, Yahweh. And they believe, in spite of the fact that they've been taken off in captivity and punishment for their sins as a nation, that God is still with them and will restore them. And uh, they know that they're not to have any other God beside them. That's the first commandment. They'd heard that all their lives. And now they're in this setting. Religion and state get merged. Kings of God. If you're one of the guests of honor, you're beholden to worship the king, or you will be eliminated from the roles of the leading. Interestingly, this is a really obviously politically corrupt act, but it's a spiritually corrupt act because basically people are being told 
you will worship Nebuchadnezzar or you'll die. And the statue that's described is kind of an interesting statue. It's probably made of stone carvings, and it's 90 feet tall. And then it, it talks about gold. What they did in those times is they would use gold, like gilded, thin gold plates and put it over the wooden statue so it looks like a gold statue, but it's not. It's kind of like when you were a little kid and you got that chocolate Easter bunny that was really tall, and you go, oh, man, I got 18 inches of pure chocolate. And then you take your first bite, and it crumbles up because it's a little thing thin crust of chocolate and it's all empty in the middle. That used to really bum me out as a kid. I always felt really deceived. And even get ripped off at Easter. Um, oh, sorry. I'm a victim. I'm a victim. No. Um, okay. So nobody's going to stand up to Nebuchadnezzar. He's made himself a god. And as you're looking at this statue in public and standing back from it, it's covered with gold and it's brand new. You probably just look off to the side and there's this kind of igloo-y looking stone thing. And there's a big fire going on inside of it. And this is the furnace or the kiln where they would smelt and shape the gold and then apply it to the statue. So old Nebi up there is talking about bowing down to the statue or you go in that fire. He's going, statue, bow down, or here. You pick. So it's, it's a very stark thing that's put in front of these people. They're staring into the mouth of this burning furnace. And it goes like this. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, the zither, the lyre, or all kinds of music, all the nations and people of every language fell down and worshipped the image of gold that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Now, it's important um, to get to the real tension of the story because... Coercive faith is no faith at all. And I think sometimes we as evangelical Christians have fronted this kind of a face on our culture, and we wonder why people think we're stupid and insensitive and underinformed. So you can't coerce anybody into believing anything. You have to offer the opportunity of faith. So this is the exact opposite of the way our God operates, that Nebuchadnezzar is operating. And... By the way, you won't believe what happens next because you'd think everybody would be uncomfortable with Nebuchadnezzar's behavior, right? That's what you'd think. But there are people there that take advantage of the situation to try to endear themselves to Nebuchadnezzar. So what do they do? They find an immigrant group who are maybe... Rapists and murderers, I don't know. But, um, but, but you find an immigrant group, immigrant group and you name them. These astrologers came forward and they denounced the Jews. And they said to King Nebuchadnezzar, may the king live forever, whoopee. Your majesty has issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, pipe, all kinds of music, will fall down and worship this image of gold. And whoever doesn't fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews whom you've set... Nebuchadnezzar over affairs in this country, in the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they're paying you no attention. Neither do they serve your gods nor worship the image of gold that you have set up. You're probably familiar with this story. You heard it in Sunday school or something like that. Interestingly enough, these three names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that were once names out of the Jewish tradition, these new names are all reference 
to a deity that was the moon god of Babylon. And so they have these pagan names. Everybody thinks they're going along with the culture because they've gotten into a status in the culture. And their identity has been stripped from them as Jews. So the assumption here is that they fully assimilated into the culture of Babylon and are willing to worship the Babylonian god who is the king himself. And as the story moves on, the real identity of these children of Israel as children of God comes out. So Nebuchadnezzar is furious with rage, and he summons these three guys to him, and these men were brought before the king. Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you don't serve my gods or worship the image of gold I've set up? Now when you hear the sound of the lyre, zipper, and all those things, if you're ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you don't worship it, you're going to be thrown immediately into that blazing furnace right over there. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? So Nebuchadnezzar has the audacity to say, my wrath is worse than God's wrath. My name is greater than Yahweh's name. We can take care of all that right now. Bow down to this statue. In other words, bow down to me and call me a God, and it'll all go well for you. And uh, needless to say, they don't buy that. They reply, King Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he doesn't, we want you to know, majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. They absolutely refuse to deviate from their faith in Yahweh, no matter what. Nebuchadnezzar was furious with these three. His attitude toward them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual. He commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in their robes and trousers and turbans and other clothes. They were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace was so hot that the flames of fire killed the soldiers who took Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to the fire. And these three men, firmly tied together, fell into the furnace. Thank you for your attention this morning, children. End of story, go home, right? <laughs> That's kind of how that would read in most of our textbooks. But it doesn't quite work that way because the Yahweh that these guys worship isn't afraid of a pile of rocks. He isn't afraid of Nebuchadnezzar. And since he invented fire, he can do whatever the heck he wants with it. Kind of cool, huh? King Nebuchadnezzar leaps to his feet after they're thrown in the fire. And he's in absolute shock. He pulls his advisors over and he goes, hang on, look in there. Weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into that furnace? And they replied, certainly, your majesty. You saw that? We sacrificed guys getting them in the furnace, right? You know, should be obvious, right? And he says, look, I see four men walking around to the fire. They're unbound. They're unharmed. Nebuchadnezzar approaches the opening, blazing furnace, and he says, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. And he summons them in a voice of stunned amazement. And all of a sudden, this grand opening that's spotlighting Nebuchadnezzar 
as a god actually becomes the opportunity for the real god to show up and manifest his power as power above all powers. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire. Verse 27, the satraps, the prefects, the governors, unfortunately now, all the people that Nebuchadnezzar was trying to put under his thumb and screw down under his leadership that are there watching, the furnace is right there in public. He tossed them in right away, a public execution. Everybody's seeing what Nebuchadnezzar sees. All of his regional leaders who he's convinced that he's a god and they've faced him with the pain of death see that these three have been delivered. Perhaps someone were close enough to get a squint of saying, didn't I see three in there? And like the king now, I'm seeing four, one like a son of man walking around in there, delivering these guys. So the king summoned these vengeant fellows in a vengeant rage, and now he's speaking to them in stunned amazement. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair on their heads singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. You see, for Yahweh and for these three dedicated followers of his, a fire is not conflagration, it's liberation in God's hands. Isn't that interesting? The fires that we go through in our lives that can sometimes seem like an absolute conflagration, a meltdown, like we're shot down in flames, actually become a source of liberation in our lives. They have the ability to, the, the fires we go through have the ability to burn off the things that bind us in amazing ways and set us free and not only unscathed, but in a better place than we were on the front end. In fact, I gotta tell you, the few times that I've really had to suffer in my life and I've really been taken down a peg and have been through the fires are probably the only times in my adult life that I've grown. All the rest of the time, I just assume that I'm sovereign and I can handle anything, right? But when we go through fires, God gets to be God, we get to be us, and we get to see in an amazing way what God can do when we, when we trust him. Now, as I read this story, there's some things... I think that this story tells us about our God. One, we know God through Jesus. And I'm prone to believe that that fourth person in the fire was a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. It's called a theophany, where God shows up in public. I don't think that was an angel. I don't think that was some spooky robot from outer heaven or something like that. I think that's the Jesus who walked with us in this world who endured the cross, who descended into hell and on the third day rose again, walking through that fire with those three guys and demonstrating, even in the depths of the Old Testament and in exile, that Israel has a God and that that God is a judge and deliverer. And if you look at the hero of this whole book, Daniel, Daniel means God is the judge. And so what we see here is God's judgment against the powers of this world. But it's not Nebuchadnezzar being revenged against and thrown in the furnace. It's not public rebellion. It's just the opportunity to live counterculturally and to allow God to demonstrate his greatness through normal people's lives. By the way, um, 
the God who delivers here doesn't deliver from trials or fires. He delivers through them. The only damage this fire did was burning off the bonds, both emotional, spiritual, and real, on the bodies of these three people. Otherwise, they're, dare I say, cool in spite of the fire. Um, The God we know in Jesus is present in our trials, and if we cling to him, his power is enough to make us courageous and bold. And this is really important to me because i got to admit to you, I'm not a brave person. I can be brash, but I'm not brave naturally. And this story tells me something. I don't think you have to be brave or you have to be found to be full of courage and resolve. You just need to be faithful. I was talking to somebody a number of weeks ago that was very sick with cancer and probably near to closing out their life and was saying, you don't have to be brave. You just have to be in relationship with Jesus. And, and he'll make the death of your human body and your deliverance to a new body and a healed body in heaven, something beautiful. But you don't have to be brave. You don't have to crank up all this courage and strength. You just have enough, have enough faith to say, Jesus, help me. Join me in the fire. And I think that's a big story here. And I guess the other thing is that the church of Jesus Christ in this world is a little bit like Israel being in a Babylonian captivity. There are a lot of things in our world that just aren't right. They're not the way they're supposed to be. And, and the sad part is we've got people saying that things that are wrong are right, and, and, and that's difficult to live with. And I think that one of the things this book tells me is that as Christians, we can live a countercultural faith. We can claim Jesus Christ and cling to him in public. And not only will we not be ashamed, he'll deliver us through the trials of life without us capitulating to the culture and to the gods of the day. And it's interesting because faithfulness to Jesus Christ over the years has brought powers to their knees. Think about the brave brothers and sisters in the civil rights movement here in the United States. Lynchings, beatings, discrimination, houses being burned down, windows being rocked, being told you've got to sit in the back of the bus or drink from this drinking fountain, you can't go in this cafe or sit at the Woolworths dining table, and all these things that were laid out that were culturally evil in our, in our culture. And people like Martin Luther King Jr. understood something. You don't have to be militantly militaristic or violent. You need to be faithful to Jesus and his way. And when you do that, God triumphs. And so we have an opportunity in this world when we won't bend our knees to the gods of the day, when we won't bow down at the sounds of our culture that want us to worship other gods, that Jesus will show up in the midst of that and do something remarkable. And of course, what happened in the civil rights movement is this demonstration of love and faithfulness in Jesus actually infected northerners. I'm a little bit young for this, but some of my friends who are older left, and and a bunch of Calvin and University of Michigan students in that era, by the way, got on buses, and they went to the South in objection to discrimination and, and the violence against people of color, and they marched with the people of color and joined them in the march. 
So that response of loving resistance that was rooted in Jesus' gospel created a movement that caused revolutionary change in our society that's still being worked out without violence and revolutionary fighting. Yes, there was some violence in that, but there wasn't a violent resistance to the oppressors in this situation. And by the way, there's another thing in here. You can't coerce people to faith, right? You know, you just can't walk around and demand that people be Christians or bow down to this or that. That's as bad as the culture. And, and sometimes that can be Christians who threaten people with hell and stuff like that. You know, uh, you're going to go to hell. Boy, hell's really a bad place. It's really miserable. We got some people in our classes here that are so fascinated about hell. They never talk about heaven. They want to describe what hell's like. And that makes me crazy, right? Cause, and they're always saying, Randy, what's hell like? And I go, I don't know and I don't want to know. You know, that's all I want to know about hell is I don't want to go there and I'm not. And I don't want anybody I won't grow up, my mission statement in life is I don't want anybody I grow up with to go to hell. Right, and, and but I don't want to spend a lot of time thinking about what that looks like, or using it as a coercive power to get get people to come to faith in some kind of a shrinking, paranoid manner. That's just not right. Um, I believe that faithful presence, and intentional faith, hope, and love transform societies and resist coercive powers, whether those are in the United States of America, the United Kingdom, South Africa, or Cameroon. And at the end of the story, the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. They had already been advancing through society because of their competence and their character and their faithfulness. And here, when you think they're being taken out of the mix, they actually do something that's so stunning through their faithfulness that they get promoted to a higher level. Your Christian integrity and living out your faith in this world may get you laughed at once in a while. It will also get you promoted. I really believe that. This world is dying for people that live a centered life in Jesus Christ, living that out in public places and demonstrating faith, hope, love, gentleness, kindness, and self-control, all the fruit of the Spirit. The world's dying to see that. And when you and I demonstrate that, people don't bow down to the concrete and brass struck gods and idols of our age. They wind up respecting and bowing down to Jesus because they see he's real and alive and has a greater power than all the powers, than any of the principalities and dominions and empires of this world can throw at anyone. I find this text horribly, horribly inspirational. It's just so straightforward. If you're a little bored with my message this morning, I'm sorry. You know how to tell the story? Read it. I just thought I might get in trouble if I read a chapter and sat down. So I, I threw a couple of comments around the side. But the story is really clear. God's calling us to love and trust him. He's not calling us to courage. He's not calling us to stuntsmanship. Just a faithful, present living in his way, in his presence, with his style of faith, hope, and love changes cultures. It's done that through the ages. It did it here in the civil rights movement. We can do it again in modern-day America. We can heal the alienation and incivility that's conquering our society right now. We can reconquer the territory for love and peace and hope if we're willing to live as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You don't need to be courageous. You just need to be faithful.
And that could start right here today. So as we go to the Lord's table this morning and pray, I'm going I'm to offer a bit of a challenge. Is that okay? Here's my challenge to all of us as we hear Daniel and take it seriously. One, in a culture that is starved and starves us at the level of spirit and soul, we center our lives in Jesus. And this bread and this cup is a symbol that he's got us that he's before us, behind us, around us, in us, and with us, that he's got us. And that, that in this hungry, dry, and parched land we live in, he's our supply. Like it said in that song, we needn't worry because he's our supply. This bread and this cup are symbols of God's sustenance for you to live in the fires of the culture we're in today. So as you receive this cup today, receive it as your empowerment Receive it as God's no to all the other gods of our age and God's gigantic yes for you. On the night in which he's betrayed, our Lord Jesus Christ, when he had given thanks, took bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body broken for you. Same manner after supper, he took the cup. When he did so, he said, this is the cup of the new covenant. This is my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. Whenever you take this bread, drink of this cup, do so in remembrance of me. Remember this morning who God is, what it means to be in him, and what he's made you in this present age.